1: Restrictions apply. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the All-Star. Matt Chapman. with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I I might
2: be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This
1: This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend.
3: It's now time for another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend, and we're going to go back and take a look at the American League Central. We've been covering every division in baseball. Now we're in the Midwest. Hall of Famer Burt Blylevin is going to join us. Jim Leland, one of the great managers of his time, is going to join us. Then we're going to have one of our all-time favorites, the Hudman, Rex Hudler. Talk a little Kansas City Royals. Darren Jackson, the former outfielder, now on the White Sox broadcast, and the legendary voice of the Cleveland Indians, Tom Hamilton. We're going to start with a man who had an unbelievable career. Two-time World Series champion, two-time All-Star, led the American League in strikeouts in 1985, pitched a no-hitter in 1977. His number 28 is retired with the Minnesota Twins, went into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2011, And he had 287 wins and has the most complete games of any modern-day pitcher. Here is the Hall of Famer, Burt Blylevin, talking about the Minnesota Twins. Our next guest here on A's Cast Live was one of the premier pitchers of his time. He won 287 games in 22 years. He's a Hall of Famer, one of the best curveballs in the history of baseball, and he calls games for the Minnesota Twins. Burt Blyleven is with us once again here on A's Cast Live. How are you?
2: Very good, Chris. Hope you and your family are doing well, and uh, nice talking to you.
3: Yeah, things are good here in Northern California, and it sounds like things are really good
2: there in Florida, too. Yeah, I'm down in Fort Myers, Florida. The golf course uh, that I belong to has been open, so that's kind of been a a savior. But I think everybody's doing a good job of uh, social distancing themselves, and uh, everything seems to be okay. And, again, our hearts and prayers go out to everybody that's been affected by the virus.
3: You know, the Minnesota Twins have really built themselves – as a powerhouse team and when you win 101 games and you set the record for most home runs and then you add a, a, a former a who we all love josh donaldson whenever this thing gets going again i think minnesota twins fans should be very excited because the firepower your ball club has is as good as anybody in the game
2: well i agree chris you know they coming off a very good year of course uh, once they get the postseason they have a tough time against those new york yankees but all in all the whole you know hopefully first of all hopefully baseball comes back soon so we as fans can uh, sit and watch a real game rather than what they've been showing on tv uh you know of course you see i'm sure in your area you're going to go back to the world series in 72 to 74 and probably 89 but uh You know, same thing for Minnesota. Everybody I talked to up there, they're seeing the 87 World Series and the 91 World Series. But uh, I think it's time to get back to real baseball to where we can see these young players, these current-day players. And, yes, uh, I think Josh Donaldson is a great addition to already a good clubhouse led by Nelson Cruz. And he should bring, you know, not only what he does between the lines, what he brings in a clubhouse, too, a lot of enthusiasm, You can see he loves to play the game, and he's not afraid to show his emotions. You know, unfortunately, in your career,
3: you had to go through labor strife and work stoppages, and you had shortened seasons. Uh, For you as a player, what was that like when you weren't playing, but you still had to stay ready to go for when the season would get going? Yeah, I mean,
2: uh, you know, my first one was one of the first ones at Marvin Miller and the Players Association we went through in 1972. And then uh, my last one was 1990 where we missed, uh, I think we had maybe about two or three weeks for spring training before the season opened in 1980, uh, 1990. But, uh, you know, as a player, this is your job. You better be ready when the bell rings. And I know that, uh, you know, everybody out there, wants to see baseball and hopefully these players are keeping themselves in great shape. So when they do have a shortened spring training, if that's what they're going to have again, before the season starts, if that happens, uh, that they're ready to play.
3: Yeah. And we always say it's a marathon, not a sprint, but if we get this thing going again, it's going to be a sprint. And I think it's going to make it interesting how, Some teams who probably wouldn't be able to last in a 162-game season, they now got a better chance if it's only like 82. The good teams, I think of you guys, I think of the Yankees, I think of the A's, I think of the Rays. Cleveland's still got a good ball club.
2: but Chicago's improved, the White Sox. Yeah,
3: it's kind of anybody's game, especially in a shortened season.
2: Well, Chris, it'll be interesting to see how the Commissioner of Baseball and the Players Association under Tony Clark come up with one main thing, and I think that's been out there right now, is how do, the, how do they keep these players healthy? If they can resolve that, I think uh, hopefully the first part of July that they're talking about, uh, maybe baseball will resume. It will resume in a different way. No, des- or The designated hitter will be in both leagues, what I understand, and there will be three divisions – Rather than American League, National League, they'll just be three divisions formed up with uh, an East, a Central, and a Western divisions with 10 teams in each division. More playoff opportunities for a lot of clubs.
3: You know, you mentioned Nelson Cruz. And, you know, Nelson Cruz has been tormenting the A's for a long, long time, whether it's as a Mariner, a Ranger, or now a twin. I mean, he just ages like a fine wine And there's just something about him that he, you keep putting him in the lineup and he keeps putting up huge numbers.
2: Well, there's certain players that, you know, have a career, kind of like a Ricky Henderson. They just, uh, you know, just get better and better with age and, you know, Ricky played for so long, but same thing for Nelson Cruz. He's learned what his body can do. He knows what he needs to do to get ready. Of course, a designated hitter rule has really helped him. Not only, you know, in Minnesota last year on, prior to that Seattle and some other ball clubs. So he knows what he needs to do. He's a good leader and he's, he's a guy that knows how to win. He also knows, you know, with winning, you have to learn how to lose too. So he's also learned that.
3: And pitching may be a little different. I mean, we, we know with the bullpens – there are already, you know, you're already going to have a lot of guys in the bullpen, but they now they might expand the rosters. How do you like right. the starting staff for the twins? There's some changes there, and, and what do you think about an expanded bullpen with the twins?
2: Well, I think you know, the, the game is different than say when I pitched in the 70s and 80s. Uh, you know, complete games are a thing of the past, they have the pitch count for the Minnesota twins. I have young Jose Barrios, two time all star. He's, he's going to be the ace. I think he's going to be in that hopefully rotation for many years to come. Jake Odorizzi, an all-star last year, had a very good year. He re-signed with the Minnesota Twins. They went out and got Homer Bailey. Michael Pineda is on a currently on a suspended list, but when he comes back, uh, then you know there's some good arms out there. Uh, uh, they got the uh, the Japanese pitcher from the Dodgers, uh, Mahita. That uh, you know, if he's healthy, he can he can bounce back and have a good year. So, starters in today's game give me five, six good innings, and then turn it over to a bullpen. That if they do expand the roster, might be uh, fifteen uh, total pitchers, might be ten guys out in the bullpen that probably all throw you know ninety-five to hundred.
3: You know, in your in your Hall of Fame career. Uh, our younger audience, the, the, you had
2: 242 complete games.
3: <laughs> 242? That's when,
2: Chris, that's when men were men, okay? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's nice. I guess from 1970 to current day, I have the most complete games of any pitcher. So that, that's a nice category to be in. Uh, you know, back then, I think, uh, you know, when you guys had Catfish Hunter, Vita Blue, Ken Holzman, Blue Moon Oda back in the 70s, you know those guys completed games. You are expected to go nine, and uh, you know, of course, you had Raleigh Fingers out there that helped. You know, Daryl Knowles and Paul Lindblad. That was quite a three-year sweep of the World Series that the A's had.
3: Well, I, I, I'm just I'm looking at your baseball reference page and. Looking at you in your mid to late 30s, you're still starting 37 to 36 games a year. The one year you completed 24 games and you started 37 times, you're 34 years old. I mean, the durability was huge, and I'm glad you bring up those 70s teams because we've just honored those teams where we're re-airing some of these World Series games. And you think about the Hairs versus the Squares, the Big Red Machine, uh, that Mets team, I don't even know how they got to the World Series. That that lineup wasn't very good. <laughs> and then you got that great Dodger team with the great Dodger infield. What a run. That, right. You have to play against those great A's teams. What was it like?
2: I'll tell you what. Uh, you know, you knew I already mentioned you got Catfish Hunter, Ken Holzman, Vita Blue, Boo Moon Autumn. And This was kind of back even when they had the four-man rotation. They threw a fifth starter in there once in a while, but as an opposing pitcher, you go into Oakland or they come your way and you say, who's your mound opponent? And you, I mentioned four guys. You know you have to pitch a good ball game, But you know you're also facing a very good lineup with Campanaris and Bando and Jackson. And I think the one guy that was always tough to get out was Joe Rudy. That guy was a good player. Gene Tennis, Ray Fossey, Dick Green, Bill Billy North. I mean, it's, it, they put together a great, great ball club under Dick Williams and also Elvin Dark.
3: And then I think uh, fast forward to 1989 where you had a phenomenal year with the Angels. You were 17-5 and five with a 2.73 ERA through 241 innings, and you got to be in the same division as that great yeah. 1989 A's team. was <laughs> like playing against that- them.
2: Well, that that was the sad part because uh, I think with the Angels there we, we won 91 ball games, looking to get into postseason. but with the divisions they were were set up back then, the first place team went. and that was the Oakland As in the year that they swept uh, the Giants. But you know you got Canseco uh, and McGuire, and I remember Dave Henderson, what a year he had in 89 along. you guys brought back uh, Ricky Henderson. Dave Parker, former teammate of mine with the Pirates, Terry Steinbach, Minnesota native, and then uh, you bought the, the veteran Don Baylor in, but seemed like he had about a four or five year span wherever he went late in the season, they ended up going to the postseason.
3: I'm glad you bring up the Pirates because that's been one of the fun things is is watching all these classic games and the classic world series. Of course, you won the world series. It was, it it was a lot of fun to go back. And I remember that as a kid, you know, you got the the great Oriole team against the, we are family pirates. That was pretty
2: special. Well, I was led by Willie Stargell. We're very lucky. We had a great manager Chuck Tanner. You know, I mentioned Dave Parker. He was on that ball club, Omar Marino. Uh, Bill Robinson, uh, you know, Bill Matlock, Tim Foley, Phil Garner, Ed Ott behind the plate with Manny Sanguian and Steve Nicosia. We had a good ball club. We had a great pitching staff. Uh, we had about six or seven guys that could start, but our closer was Kent DeColby. And uh, he he saved almost every game that he was asked to go out there, a lot like uh, what Dennis Eckersley did in 89. Yeah, and Kent DeColby –
3: he didn't look like the the scariest guy with those glasses, but he just mowed people down.
2: No, I look like a science teacher, you know. You're looking for a Bunsen burner when uh, he went out to the mound, but uh, he had that nasty underarm delivery that had a lot of movement on his pitches.
3: You know, one of the things people have talked about, you know, we don't know exactly yet what what all is going to be implemented into the game once we get back. We know they're going to experiment with some stuff. And one of the things they may, because you may not want to have umpire, catcher, and batter so close to each other that they may go with an electric strike zone. Uh, I think about your curveball, the break on your curveball, what that would have been like with an electric strike zone. What's your opinion on this new potential uh, strike zone?
2: I hope that electric strike zone stays in the minor leagues, never gets to the big leagues. Uh, That's just my opinion. Uh, I don't like it. Uh, I, I think, you know, baseball is a human game, not a machine game. But uh, baseball today has kind of made it a machine type of atmosphere through the analytic part and everything that goes on. A lot of it is good. Some of it I don't like. But, you know, smarter heads than me will prevail and come up with the solution that's best to protect the players when they do come back and if they do come back uh, in early July.
3: Bert, it is always an honor to have you on the program. Be safe down there in Florida. If you get out on the golf course, hit them straight. And uh, hopefully at some point we'll see you out at the Coliseum.
2: Uh, Chris, thank you very much. And uh, good luck to everybody out there. And uh, go baseball.
3: Thank you. We just get these legends to come on the program. It's just great. From one legend to another legend. He won the World Series in 1997 with the Florida Marlins. Three times he was manager of the year. Jim Leland, the buddy of Tony La Russa, friend of the program. We welcome Jim Leland back to A's Cast Live. Well, our next guest is a legend in our game. He's a three-time manager of the year. He's a World Series champion, a gold medal in the World Baseball Classic. Jim Leland is back on the program. How are you, Jim?
4: Well, I'm doing fine. How are you?
3: I'm doing well, and and we know you still work for the Detroit Tigers. But I want to ask you, you know, because we're watching all these classic games, and I think people really forget in 1997 just how talented your Florida Marlins were. I look back on that team, and your team was stacked.
4: Yeah, we really had a good team from top to bottom. We were deep. We had a good bullpen. We had good starting pitching. Uh, anchored by Kevin Brown, Al Leiter, Alex Hernandez. Uh, yeah, we, were, we were good. And, of course, Lamon Hernandez came up that year and was a wonder for us. So, uh, yeah, we had a good team, a really good team, a combination of veterans and some younger players. And, uh, you know, I, I really believe that we were the best team that year when we played Cleveland in the World Series, that they had one of the best offenses I've ever seen in my entire managerial career. But <laughs> we thought we'd be able to score maybe in that series against them. And we were a few games, and in other games, they, they held us down pretty good.
3: And it's rated as one of the great World Series of all time, obviously coming down to the very end. And I, I, I just look at you, – you, you did have also some players that were in their prime.
4: No, no question about that. You know, we had, we had Gary Sheffield there at the time. You know, he was he an was excellent, excellent player. We had Jim Eisenreich, who was a veteran player. Good player we picked up, Darren Dalton, late in the season, who was a terrific player. Uh, Charles Johnson, young, outstanding defensive catcher. That's some power. Devon White, a veteran center fielder. And then, of course, the youngster, Edgar Renneria. at short, Bobby Bonilla. Third, Moises in left. I mean, this was really a good team. Like you say, it was a combination of some veteran guys with some young guys. Yeah,
3: Isn't that the way to build a team? Is You're going to have veterans. You want to have guys in their prime. And then you want some youth. You want some young guys to keep you fresh.
4: Yeah, I don't think there's any question about it. I think you got to break guys in. If you can break a guy or two in every year, I think that's really the way to do it. If you can, uh, the Oakland A's have done a great job at that. They've brought, they've uh, broken in some young players over the years. They've done a great job out there, by the way. Um, you know, they've had some veterans and they've they made some good trades. They made some smart signings. Uh, they've done a terrific job with uh, you know not as much payroll as a lot of the other teams, hardly any of the teams. So, I think right now, to be honest with you, I think Tampa Bay Rays and, and the Oakland A's are kind of the model that. All the young general or all the general managers are looking for right now. Yeah,
3: the, the way this game is, you know, for so many years it was about payroll, and if you didn't have payroll, you didn't have a chance. Uh, you, you 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 didn't have a chance coming out of spring training. And really, Billy Bean and Moneyball and changing the way we view the game has allowed some of these teams who don't generate a lot of revenue to be able to compete
4: yeah they, you know the, the the big difference is a team like the Oakland A's they really can't like when I was with the Pirates the same thing you really can't afford to make a mistake if, if you've got a team like the Red Sox or the Yankees they can go out and sign a guy maybe it doesn't work out they can cover that up and go out and sign somebody else but with teams like Oakland Tampa Bay Pittsburgh in the old days teams like that you couldn't cover it up if you made a mistake you were kind of stuck with it and you really couldn't do anything about it but Some other teams could, you know, they could compensate for that because of the payroll and, and, you know, the the intake of money that they had. uh, You know, they could kind of cover up a mistake.
3: Well, just one more on the Marlins. I I, I did an interview with Rob Nen. And Rob Nen was so disappointed. He was like, you know, that group, you know, you're a wild card team. You win the World Series. But he was like, the confidence that that team had, he really believed there was another championship or two in the future of that team if you keep it
4: together. Well, you know, it's hard to say. We would have won one for sure, but I I definitely think we'd have been in the postseason. I think we'd have got back to postseason. Once you get there, you never know for sure what's going to happen. But we had all those guys were signed, and they were really signed to pretty good contracts at the time. We had them kind of signed long term, and of course, uh, you know, we we destroyed the team. We, you know, we let guys go. We traded everybody, and you know, everybody knows that story. But you know, hey, that's life. That's part of it, and you, you know, you understand that kind of stuff. But We were the real deal, and we would have been strong competition, I think, for the Braves for the next few years. We had guys signed at pretty good prices for quite a while.
3: And looking at 2020, the Detroit Tigers, you're still with the organization. Last year was obviously a a rebuild. They're 47 and 114. It's really tough to lose 114 games. But the thing that you get to see their minor leaguers, they've got some real promise coming up, don't they, with a lot of pitching?
4: Yes, they do. Well, I think we're one of the uh, probably one of the most pitching wealthy uh, organizations in the minor leagues right now. We got some guys that this has really hurt what's going on this year because we have those guys like Mize and Manning and people like that. That and this kid Scubal that has really come on and turned things around. We we got a lot of guys. A kid named Fiedo, uh Perez that we traded in the Houston deal with uh, with Verlander. You know these guys are all. Uh, just a little ways away, and they needed to really get that at least probably the first half of the season at AAA under their belt or possibly even a full year at AAA. But they're all the real deal, believe me. They're good, and they they got a chance to really be good. So pitching will carry you a long way. We're still a little short on position player maybe. We don't really have that one position player unless it's, uh, Riley Green does it, but he's going to be a little while yet. He was drafted a year ago and really a good, good-looking hitter. So, you know, we're pitching rich right now, and that's a good start. So, uh, we have the first pick in the draft this year. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. But, uh, yeah, we're, you know, we're doing, we're taking a beating. We took a beating last year, like teams that are rebuilding uh, do a lot of the times. But I don't think we're uh, very far away from starting to really compete in the sense.
3: Yeah, I mean, you think about it, Jim. You know, not not too long ago, the the Astros were so bad, we nicknamed them, we nicknamed them the Lastros, And now, all of a sudden, you look. I mean, it, it, it's really the exact same model. And we've we've seen highlights of Casey Mize. Just how good is he?
4: Well, he's a real deal. I mean, he's got excellent, outstanding stuff, and he's got. I think what gets him puts him a little above some of the other guys is. Uh, he's not as overpowering as a Manning or somebody, but, uh, his ability to pitch, I think, you know, college was probably really good for him. He, he pitched in the SEC, I believe and, at Auburn. And, uh, so, you know, I think his experience and learning how to pitch really helped him because he's, he's a guy with really good stuff, but he's a pitch maker. He has the ability to make a pitch. And, uh, sometimes it takes, you know, younger pitchers a while. They have to learn some things in the big leagues you know, before they can do that. But this guy's going to come to the big leagues with the ability to make a pitch.
3: Miguel Cabrera, obviously, the past couple of years with his health and he has struggled. And, you know, the reports from down in Florida that, that you know, he's in better shape and that he was starting to have a pretty good spring training. He's 23 home runs away from, what, 500. Um, he's truly one of the great players of his generation. What are your expectations for Miggy this year?
4: Well, I think he's going to do well. I, I don't think you're going to see the power numbers like 44, 45 like he's done in the past. I don't think you're going to see that again. But I think you're you you know, you're going to see some home runs. I think he'll hit quite a few home runs, but I don't think he'll hit 40, 45 anymore. But I think he will hit close to 300. Uh, he's going to get his hits. He's a great hitter. He's still a great hitter. And he still has a chance to knock in a lot of runs for us. So I think Miggy's going to really do well this year. You know, a lot of times people say, well, he's in, he's, in, he's in better shape this year. Well, A lot of times, you know, maybe he wasn't in his best shape because he was hurt. And a lot of times he wasn't able to keep himself in the shape that he wanted him to. This year, he's healthy. He got himself in great shape. And he really looked good this spring. And I was impressed because he was getting to the fastball much, much better and hitting it out of the ballpark in spring training some and driving the ball again. So I think Miggy's going to have a real good year. It's not going to be a triple crown type year like he did in the past. But this guy's one of the great players of all time.
3: You know, when I think back to 2012 and 2013, those were very special years for the A's. And then, unfortunately, we ran into you and Justin Berlander. (laughs) Uh, Looking back at those two series between the A's and the Tigers, what do you remember from 2012 and 2013?
4: Well, they they were great games. I mean, both series went five games, which is the way it should be. And, uh, you know, we had to win in Oakland, which is a tough place to to play, particularly in the postseason. I don't think I've ever heard a stadium louder than when we played out there. But, you know, to be honest with you, that was really, uh, for two straight years, it was really the Justin Verlander show. That's just what it was. I mean, he was absolutely phenomenal uh, in both those starts against Oakland. And really, uh, he carried us. Miggy hit a big home run, uh, you know, in that uh, last series. But, uh, you know, it was really the Justin Verlander show, those, those two playoffs.
3: Yeah, and you just knew, right? It's Game Five. It's Verlander, and you're like, "Oh boy!" I mean, that had to be a nice ace in your back pocket to know that in the clinching game you got the big right-hander.
4: No question about it. You know, I felt real comfortable. Obviously, going into the game the first year, and then the second year felt the same way. Uh, you know, you you knew that runs were going to be scarce, Uh there wasn't going to probably be a lot of runs scored, and you knew that Verlander was going to be pretty stingy, so. Uh, you know, we felt like we had a great chance. I'm sure they felt like they had a great chance, and they were they were great games. I mean, these, these weren't runaway games; these were exciting, really good baseball games.
3: When you think about Justin Verlander, do you think he'll get to 300 wins?
4: Uh, I don't know about that. I'm not sure exactly what he has right now. What's he got right now? Do you know?
3: It's like 220 something, I think, right around. Because he's he's close to 230.
4: All uh, right, close to 230. He's got I think it's 70 more. Uh, I think possible, but probably unlikely. Uh, I, I would say probably unlikely that he gets the 300, but he's going to get enough to go to the Hall of Fame, I think, on the first ballot. Oh,
3: I, yeah, to me, I, to, you know, obviously we've, we've watched his dominance against the A's. And, of course, Detroit trades him in our division to Houston, so he's still uh, serving us our lunch. Uh, I, I think Possibly. there's no question he's a first ballot Hall of Famer.
4: Yeah, I think so as well. You know, he's great. He's got, you know, he's got a lot of strikeouts, he's pitched a lot of innings. I remember people telling me when he was in Detroit, oh, you're pitching him too many pitches. That and Well, he's still pitching. You know, pitchers are made to pitch. I don't believe in all that stuff about the pitches. Scherzer and him, they said, oh, you're, you're pitching him too much. Well, they're both still pitching. They both still have dominant stuff. And I think it's because they pitched. I mean, pitchers are supposed to pitch. And that's why they call them pitchers. And I think that we, probably have a tendency to baby the pitchers a little bit too much in the minor leagues. Now we're so conscientious of everybody getting hurt. And, you know, I, don't, I don't think that, you know, five innings and a three to two game and a starting pitcher leaves. I don't think that's a good performance. But a lot of people do now. I do not.
3: I uh, can't, I can't agree more. And I think that's one of the things that last year's world series kind of brought back as everybody's been talking about bullpenning and openers and everything that the Astros against the Nationals those are two teams built on their starting staffs
4: yeah I mean I don't think there's any question about it I mean you know your your best bullpen is a, is a seven inning starting pitcher that's your best bullpen so you know a lot of people I mean and I, anyway that's what I think anyway and I think you saw that in the last year you know, a couple of years ago, everybody was talking about the bullpen, the bullpen, the bullpen. Oh, use them early. Use them at the crucial time. Blah, blah, blah. Use them early in the game. Well, you know, that might be that might be something that works temporarily. But if you don't have good starting pitching that's going to keep you in games and go deep into the game, you're not going to win a pennant, in my opinion. I I, I just don't think that's going to happen. Jim, it's
3: always an honor to have you on the program, and especially at a time like this. Be safe, and uh, hopefully we'll be talking to you, and we'll be talking a little baseball and get, get this going in 2020.
4: Well, we hope so, and you guys stay healthy out there.
3: You want energy? You want someone who loves this game? No one loves this game more than Rex Hudler, the Wonder Dog. Started his career with the New York Yankees in 1984. Really, uh, you think about his time with the then-California Angels. He played from 1984 to 1998 and now is the color analyst for the Kansas City Royals. Grew up in Fresno, so we're bringing him back to Northern California. Here's the HUD man. Well, we always like bringing him back to Northern California. He's a Fresno guy, and he's one of my favorite players that I watch. He's one of my favorite broadcasters. No one loves this game. More than Rex Hudler. Nobody. And I know it's got to be killing them that we're not playing. Hudman, how are you? It's been a while.
5: Oh, so happy you called my name today. To be on, not only with you, but to be on with your audience from the beautiful Bay Area. Seems like my career has ran through that Bay Area three and a half miles south or or hours south in beautiful Fresno. Uh, First game in my life at Candlestick Park at nine years old. I'll never forget it. And then, unfortunately, I was never able to play on one of the Bay Area teams, although the Giants hired me in 94 through spring training, and they fired me with one week to go. But, look, oh. that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. It's so great to be with you guys, especially talking about ball.
3: Well, you know that uh, – in so our show, Ace Cast Live, people can hear it in Fresno. And you were a legend in Fresno when you look back, uh, not only as a baseball player, but the great days of what you did on the gridiron as a football player in Fresno.
5: Well, the only reason I like to look back is to cherish those that taught me. Some of the great teachers I had in public school there at Bullard high school. I had some fantastic coaching as a football coach. I had John Anabo was a fantastic guy. Uh, these guys had Division One college experience. Mike Noakes is a baseball legend in baseball. He, he there. He went to Cal Berkeley, uh, Mike Noakes, and got his degree, played some ball, and came down to uh, Board High School and turned it into a, a championship-caliber team. And so those guys taught me how to hustle. Now, God blessed me with uh, some athleticism so I could run and catch the ball. Two major ingredients of being a ball player. And so – I learned how to hit, about 10, 15 years later, I learned how to hit, but man, they taught me the essentials, the hustle and the attitude, the only two things you can control as a ball player, the rest you can't control, but if you can control your hustle and your attitude, you can go a long way if you have some talent, so then we didn't know it was going to take me so long to mature, 10 years of minor league ball, but we finally got there and man, just milked the grand game for everything it had.
3: You know, in your career, I I always find it fascinating when you come up to the New York Yankees, your manager is Yogi Berra. You've got legends on this team. You've got, you've got Dave Winfield. You got Lou Piniella. You got what Don Baylor was there. uh, Don Mattingly, uh, Willie Randolph. What was it like as a young kid, you come up and you come up with the New York Yankees.
5: That's a great question, and thank you for asking it. Not many people do ask a question like that. But, man, that was one of the greatest times in my life. And at that particular time, Mr. Steinbrenner would buy his free agents. And so that's where they, he would get his players, not through the farm system that I came up in. And, you know, you're not going to find any players that do six, parts of six years in A-ball anymore. That's what I did. Just kind of a log jam back in the in the late 70s, 80s. Uh, and and there was a log jam of, of, of players: Steve Balboni, Willie McGee, so many. And now Bonzi made his debut as a New York Yankee, uh, but they moved him on. So many really good players: Grayback, uh, Jim Deshays, so many guys. But we all surfaced, and that was that was the key. We surfaced, but to be mentored by Dave Winfield and having been, been given the best advice uh, anybody ever gave me was, "Hey kid." One thing is guaranteed a ball player. What's that? And I didn't know. I was 22 years old. You're gonna be an X-Ball player. And and you know, I've seen you play, kid. Uh you might be an X-ball player before you really want to become one. But here's what you do. What you do, you take the blinders off, you look around, you shake hands with people, you, you look them in the eye, and you talk to them, you never know. One of those people there are going to give you a job someday, especially the people that come to Yankee Stadium here. He goes, now, when you go where you're going to go, back to the minors, uh, make sure you ask your PR guy if you if you need a player for a luncheon and you need somebody to speak, that you're available. Learn how to tell your story because you never know how far this game can take you. And this was like Dave Winfield, the only player to ever get drafted in all three sports, major sports. And to take time with a call-up uh, rookie and let me fly on him with the, uh, on the uh, seat next to him at the airport, at the airplane, and just really uh, sucking all the knowledge I could out of him, but he gave it to me. And I broadcasted for 20 years after, after some of that advice I got by Winnie. So um, to be mentored by Willie Randolph, uh, Willie was an ultimate pro. I was behind him as a second baseman. Would invite me in to take ground balls with him when typically a, a young guy waits till the, the position guy's done, the starter, and then he goes and takes his grounders. But Willie would invite me in. Uh, these guys were really classy people, including Ken Griffey Jr. He was on that team, and then there was a, his son would come bopping in the Yankee locker room at about you know 15, 14, 15 years old, and you could just tell by looking at his swagger, his walk. His smile that that Ken Griffey Jr. was going to be a ball player. But man, let's not forget about senior. Class act had a great career himself. And Don Baylor, can't forget about him, who really helped me a lot too.
3: You know, and I think about in your career and what has what carried over as a broadcaster is your love for the game, the hustle, the hard work. It doesn't matter if you're playing or you're broadcasting everybody knows that you're giving it 100. It, it's always 100. It's never below that. It's always fifth gear for you. And I think that's the reason why these fan bases, whether you are a player or a broadcaster, they love you because they know there, there's no days off for you. You bring it every day.
5: <laughs> Tomorrow's not guaranteed. What the heck? Why wouldn't I bring it today? And what I did yesterday, that's gone. I remember sharing with my son here just recently, who's been quarantined with my 17 and 18-year-old sons, which has been a huge blessing to get some time I'll never get with them. And I was talking to him about, about playing the game and the grand game and how baseball, the next would sort of watch it on the replay. Oh, man, was that cool to dig yourself. And then wake up the next morning, and they would replay it again. But when you went to the ballpark that day, and you shut the door of your car in that parking lot, that's over, man. What have you done for me lately? So the, the, the game of grinding like that was, was really fun, but it's great to be able to share with people um, about the importance of day. Day, day one, day two. Day one first comes before two. It's so important that we focus just in the moment we have and then let it go. And I remember good or bad, mainly bad games, when I was in that shower with 25 nozzles and had a big shower for all these guys and I would wash the suds down the drain. I would wave to the drain in the soap and go, see ya, wouldn't want to be ya. That's a, That offer is gone. And I would go back to my locker, put my clothes on, and then I would head home and love on my wife and then bring it the next day. Every single day, pack a lunch.
3: You know, obviously, it's it's been a wild ride in Kansas City. You know, they went for a time where they weren't very good. The next thing you know, they're... They could have won two. If it wasn't for Madison Bumgarner, they would have won two straight World Series. And then now it's back to uh, tough times last year at 59 and 103. But, you know, in a short, if we're talking 80 to 100 games, whatever it's going to be, it's really anybody's game. And you got a new manager in Kansas City.
5: Well, that's a huge part, no question. But you're talking about Dayton Moore, who's the, the one of the greatest general managers there are in the game today. Brilliant mind. He's not as young as he once was, but I'll tell you what, he has gained a lot of knowledge building from within, taking a small market uh, organization in in a great baseball city in Kansas City and rebuilding, having the fan base trust you. They trusted him, and look what he brought them. He brought them back-to-back a World Series, which never happens, especially by a major market team like the Yankees, maybe the Red Sox. But Kansas City, you have to tip your cap. Now, that's been five years ago, and they moved on since then, and they had, and they, they put all their chips in the middle. And Dayton Moore traded traded a bunch of his minor leaguers. He traded some really good players, some good young pitching, but everybody went in to win a title. You've got to tip your cap to a guy like that that goes for it. And the whole organization he believed in, and bam, they paid off. He's rebuilding. So what he's been doing the last few years, and we had 200 lost seasons in a row, which has not been good. We don't have a bullpen. He went out those years that he was doing that, hiring free agents that were veterans early in the season that were free agents that were cheap. And then he could turn around and move them at the the, uh, trade deadline and get some young players. That's what he's been doing the last five years to build his system up. That's what he said he needed to do all along. He stayed on his plan, and he's got some pretty good p- talent right now, especially the firepower. Solaire and and uh, with Merrifield and Mondesi, he's got some chips. Uh, and now the, the problem was the bullpen. So who shows up this year? A guy named Trev- Trevor Rosenthal, who was throwing 102, and he's looking like he did in the Cardinals when he put pitch for them and closed them, their games down. He looks good. You got Kennedy, Ian Kennedy, who last year – uh, t- towards middle of the way through, he was their closer, saved 20 games. He looks good, so now they're starting to get it back into the bullpen. Greg Holland is back and looking good too. To mix in with a couple of lefties and a righties, they got uh, strikeout capabilities. So th- if they play a short season, that bullpen looks like it's going to be able to hold some games, hold some runs down. It's going to be super.
3: And you got some former first round picks that look like they can be something special pitchers wise, you know, these kids, singer Lynch, co talk about these young kids that they come up and now you could have a whole different starting rotation.
5: Dayton Moore talked about the importance of those veterans that he acquired to move them, to build up a system. And also said, he's going to rely on his draft and look what he's done. Wow. They had a battle even a couple years ago, uh, a bunch of number one picks, uh, righties, lefties, a couple of them out of Florida. you know. And when I saw the kid Singer, when they showed his highlights on our broadcast, and I looked at him, and I saw him spit, I went, that's exactly the guy they need to fill in for the late Jordano Ventura that already had that in him. you got to have guys that are tough, guys that only have stuff, but I want to see what you made of mentally. Mentally tough guys that are strong out there, that aren't afraid to back hitters off the plate, those are the guys I like, and not just me. Fortunately, Dayton Moore, who acquires them, they've got them three or four guys like that. If one of them hit, that's great. But if two or three or four of them hit, the Royals are back. Watch it happen.
3: And how good Salvador Perez, obviously Tommy John, and you know, sat and actually, you know, this time off is probably helping him. But how nice is going to be your leader and your catcher having him back?
5: They added a top. A free agent in the offseason by getting getting uh Salvi back are you
3: kidding man
5: you know he was there in spirit you know and his heart on the bench during this past year where they missed him but you know he wasn't anything like he can be he wants to be a leader this guy's a winner he's a world series champion as uh, a world series mvp and he knows how to handle pitching, and he wants to be a Hall of Fame catcher. Now, as big as he is, I don't know if he's going to be able to last, a, you know, four, five, six, seven more years, but he's going to catch a long time to be that guy. But if he doesn't, they can move him first. Big target, easy, soft hands. Uh, no question, one of the most valuable players in the American League, period. So you add him with Aerosol Lair, who led the league in homers, with, led the league in hits. Mondesi he would have led the league in steals had he stayed healthy. He's back. He's healthy. There's your run production. Now you've got to have a staff. The starting staff, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of mediocre as far as you would look at it. Uh, they're good, solid pitchers. Duffy, you got the young Keller, Brad Keller, who was a rookie free agent. Actually, he was a, a Rule Five guy. He's done well the last two years. Mike Montgomery, they got him as a left from the Cubs. Uh, He's looked pretty good. He's a solid guy, not overpowering. But they have just decent guys in the rotation. But I tell you, they know that it's the pin to win. And in 14-15, and we didn't have a great starting rotation, but we had that bullpen and we had guys that put the ball in play and they could put numbers up. And the way they steal bases and they run, we haven't even talked about that. The Royals have weapons. They don't only have power. they got guys that get on base. they got guys that steal. Merrifield steals bases. Mondese steals, Dozier run, Phillips and Bubba Starling. Those are, those are the 24th, 25th, 26th guys that come off the bench have speed. So the Royals, people know their formula. They've seen it, especially in the business. And they're, they're beware of, of teams like that that can beat you without going deep. 14 and 15, the Royals were last in homers. That's almost unheard of in today's modern game. They didn't need homers. They put the ball in play. They attacked. They ran. They played small ball. And there's a formula for victory. Believe it.
3: Yeah. I le- you know, you mentioned Whit Merrifield. We've had him on the program. You know, I, I love the guy. I love his game, his versatility and over 200 hits. He's a hitting machine. And there, there could be some excitement. And the thing is, if we're playing 100, if we're playing 80, whatever it is, it's kind of anybody's game. We had Paul and on from ESPN earlier today where he was talking about, if you look at last year at like the halfway mark, you know, you had the nationals, the world series champion. They were just a game over 500. They wouldn't be in the playoffs in a short schedule. The Padres would have been in the playoffs or certain teams that would have been the like our A's. We wouldn't have been in the playoffs if you would have gone from the halfway mark. So really looking at this thing, no matter who you are, if it's only 80 games and you get out to a hot start, Hudman, I it's really anybody's game.
5: This is what makes this season coming the ever. There's never been anything like it. Even the strike shortened 94 95 season. Heck, when we started in May, I was a player then. And unfortunately, I, I'm not proud to, to say I was a part of that, the only World Series not being played. But look, uh, that was our doing. We, we struck. But this is, this is not the players doing. This is a whole world deal. So, so anything can go now. Now I think Major League Baseball should open up. They should experiment anything they want to experiment for this season here, uh, for for whatever they're going to play, 80, 100, 90, whatever they play, and just grab onto your seats and just ride this wave and have
2: some fun with ball.
3: Yeah, no doubt about it. I can't wait. I can't wait to see you at the Coliseum. I want to get the Hudman and, and, and Steve Fizziok gets you guys back here up in Northern California.
5: <laughs> man we sure have a good time now there's no guarantees that we'll even travel we don't know what's going to happen i sure hope so we just we hope it's going to be like it used to be but it may never be in the meantime the grand game is still the same
3: we love having you on. We appreciate it. And kind of one of the things that we've been trying to do here with Ace Cast Live is, is bring on familiar voices. And for my program and my audience, and of course, as you grew up here in Northern California, you're one of those familiar voices to help people in a time when they're locked in their home. So thank you so much for the time. You know, we always appreciate it and can't wait to see you back here in Northern California.
5: Oh, praise God for all the blessings he's given me in my life to be able to never have a real job. Are you kidding? A player, broadcaster? Oh, let's play ball.
3: From one former player to another, Darren Jackson is on the call for the Chicago White Sox. Started his career in 1985 and ended with the White Sox in 1999. Here's the longtime voice of the Chicago White Sox, Darren Jackson well here on A's cast live we've been covering every division we started with the National League West then we went to the Central and the East and then we just finished up with the American League East and now we star in the American League Central and we're going to go with a team that's kind of a chic pick this year in the Central Darren Jackson longtime outfielder and now broadcaster for the Chicago White Sox joins us Darren how have you been it's been a while
0: Yes, it has, Chris. It's been a while indeed. And it's it's felt like it's been forever since we had the opportunity to really just get back to work, talk about some baseball and hopefully get ourselves back onto the baseball field and have a game to broadcast. So I know we're all looking forward to baseball whenever it gets here, as long as it's safe for everybody to be part of it and, and enjoy the entertainment. Let's, let's hope that that's very soon.
3: Yeah. And, and if South Korea can work and it looks like it's working right now, but we'll go through that process, uh, playing without fans, that's something you've been a part of before you were uh, a part of the broadcast that day in Baltimore when there was no fans.
0: Yeah, that was definitely unique in so many facets of the word because not only was it an empty stadium under dire circumstances because of the riots that had taken place there, but, um, the game that day, I, I'm, I'm a longtime broadcaster by that time, and my partner on the radio had been Ed Palmer for years, and he happened to be sick and not do the game. And it was the first time ever a play-by-play gig for our pre-and-post guy, Chris Ronzi. and <laughs> So we've got an empty stadium with no ambiance, no crowd noise, no anything. And just like that, we go one, two, three on the top of the first inning, the White Sox do against the Orioles. And then they score, I believe, six runs in the bottom of the first inning. And I'm looking at him, it's 6 nothing in the bottom of the first with no energy. This is going to be fun. So it was <laughs> the longest game for a guy that didn't ever have a play-by-play gig before who was relying on the game itself to provide the energy. And, oh, I'm going to tell you this, in that circumstance, it was not good when you didn't have the experience to sit there and tell a million different stories. So, um, yeah, that, that experience was not a positive one, but – I look at it this way. If we are broadcasting games and presenting this to the fans to listen to, I think it will be just fine as long as you have experienced guys that know how to prepare and know how to tell the stories and give you the information, give you some fun on the side. And if you can do that, there's no problem. But it's a lot more work, obviously, because you just don't have that crowd noise in the background carrying you through and filling the empty space. So now it's up to you to do it.
3: You know you mentioned uh your former partner, and we were going to bring this up because uh, I've had Ed on the program for years, and it, you know we know he's had health problems, and it's just sad that we lost you know not only a former player but truly one of the great broadcasters we've had in this game
0: yeah, um like I mentioned ed and i we we were together a lot of years and we were like, we were probably closer than brothers. We were best friends. And we just, unfortunately, um, we lose one of the best people in the business and the game on the planet because he did so much for so many people, not only in the game, but away from the game. He probably did more off the field than ever on it or around it. But yeah, um, I'm saddened. I'm saddened that it took place where nobody could be there to represent and be part of, of his passing. And, um, you know We're fortunate in the sense that we have such an amazing owner and uh, chairman and Jerry Reinsdorf that has already said that when we do get back to work, there'll be one heck of a memorial that's going to take place at our ballpark that's uh, going to really tell who Ed Farmer was. And it'll represent the city of Chicago, and I'm sure everybody will be extremely proud of how that turns out.
3: And, you know, with a, with a shortened season, it really is anybody's game. And the Chicago White Sox come in where a lot of people are expecting them to be far better than 72 and 89, what they were last year. Uh, They've made some additions. People think that this team is going to be very competitive.
0: Well, this year, absolutely. You know, going into spring training, you got to realize the big thing was, All the new guys, the veterans that we brought in, the talented guys, the guys that maybe aren't at their peak anymore on a little bit of a downside, but still very talented and uh, well-rounded players mentally and physically, um, they were bringing the level of play up for the younger players who have been gaining an experience and being very good players in the first place. But now they were getting that knowledge from these veterans that we brought in, and that really... Uh, it kind of fills in that gap of where you need more experience to contend in the division because their experience, those veterans that we brought in, the Edwin Encarnacion, the Dallas Keuchels, guys that came in and knew how to play the game really well at a high level can go ahead and bring you up to a higher level just by being there and filling your that void of information, say, that they know and acquired over the years. So I thought we would be a very exciting team. Tough, though, Chris, really tough to over take the Minnesota Twins who are just a really a juggernaut in the Central but that doesn't mean that we weren't going to really push it and make it real interesting so I, I, look there's only one way to really find that out we got to get back at it now does the energy carry over that we had going into spring training what we had going on in spring training because of this hiatus can you kind of get it back uh, and feel like it's all new again with the veterans that you know are there and got to pick up these young guys again I think so I think I think these players are professional enough to figure out how to go ahead and uh, get that energy back and, and be ready to go. It doesn't matter what the competition level is.
3: Yeah. The twins hit a lot of home runs and they added Josh Donaldson. And I, th- I think the big question for, for a lot of people is, which baseball are we going to be using in 2020?
0: <laughs> so, so we're going down the path of, Hey, that juice baseball huh? that. Uh, that helium ball that just carried out of the ballpark. Look, I always look, I'm that guy that says, hey, it doesn't matter. Both teams are using the same baseball or both teams are playing in the same condition. So it really comes down to, it still comes down to the talent. And you know what? Um, the only time it's not equal is if you're changing the baseballs when one team's hitting and then another team gets a different baseball. Other than that, you got to build your team in accordance and, and know that you're built for certain things. Now, you know, the Minnesota Twins have been built for power, and those are young guys that have kind of, you know, the Keplers and, and Rosarios, these guys have figured out how to drive the ball. They've just come into their own. Okay, that's good. They're in a good hitter's park. Well, the White Sox have added some power, and they get, gained some experience. they got a really good team, a batting champion, an RBI champion. we got a guy that's one of the best all-around players in all of baseball, and Yon Moncada I, I mean, it really comes down to how you build a complete lineup and roster. And I think the White Sox have done it the right way. And we're and we're filling the void right now of some guys coming back also from uh, Tommy John surgery. Well, obviously, the late start of the season puts them closer to joining the big league team. So I think we're going to actually be stronger because of this delay to the season, allowing other guys to get themselves physically ready to go.
3: Yeah, that, that that's a great point. And, and you know, you, you've seen guys – I mean, we got Tommy John going all over the place. And I think for the guys who just had it with a shortened season, if you're ever going to want to have to have Tommy John, this would be the season to do it. And then, as you mentioned, you had a bunch of guys coming back that, that we've heard, oh, they'll be back in June or July. Well, they, they can be back and have a full season now.
0: Well, they could. Now, the hard part is this. We're going to Michael Kopech, who's one of the top prospects in all of baseball, that was going to be available for us, was throwing in spring training, probably going to go down to A this year and uh, throw half a season there and build up the game speed strength. But that's not available now, that minor league going down there and throwing and getting yourself ready. But it doesn't mean that he won't be back a month and two once we get this thing going again. It it doesn't mean he could be back and have a major impact. Same thing with the veteran that we have in Carlos Rodon that was going to be ready halfway or late in the season. They might push him even quicker. So all of a sudden, our rotation becomes a juggernaut that we didn't expect, and you're going, whoa, look at this starting rotation, everybody that's going to feed this rotation now, and that's going to be important going into the latter part of this season now. So I think it's impactful for so many clubs that have those guys that are really, we're going to be ready early part to mid part of this season. It's just how long will you allow them to recover before you say, okay, that's good enough for a short season.
3: What were your first thoughts? You know, as a guy that played in the big leagues a long time, when a prospect gets a six year, $50 million deal, he's a prospect, Robert, the outfielder. What, what What were your first thoughts when you heard that?
0: Um, honestly, I, I kind of looked at it and I thought, after seeing him physically, what he's capable of doing in spring training—not um, this spring, but the previous spring—I mean, I this guy's legit. There's certain tools that just jump to the forefront immediately that you just don't have to teach. His instincts in the outfield were natural. Uh, his speed is—I mean, it's phenomenal. His arm is there. You see how well-rounded he is as a young player, and then he goes out and has a year where nobody even came close to what he did through all the minor leagues. Because he's that exceptional, I got no problem with that. I look at it, and, I, and we did it the year before with Eloy Jimenez. We just said, hey, here you go. This guy's going to hit you know, 50 home runs a year. Well, he was a rookie. He had a slow start. He hit 34 home runs as a rookie or 32 home runs as a rookie, and I'm going, yeah, they got that one right. Well, I guess what? I think they got it right with Luis Robert as well. He's somebody that you look at and you go, yeah, back-to-back years where you have this undeniable talent and these guys want to play and they want to prove how great they are. They've got that one chip. That's the thing. Uh, Will they all of a sudden be, you know, content with, hey, I got the contract, or are they driving to prove they earned it and deserve it and have the talent not to pressure themselves? Well, so far with Eli Jimenez, he wants to get better every year. I already know that. And I think Luis Robert, with the right leadership and uh, Jose Abreu around him and and Menes and all these others, this guy's going to be a phenomenal player. And it's going to turn out to be a good deal for the White Sox.
3: Yeah, it was good to see Abreu uh, re-sign with the White Sox because he's going to go down as, as truly one of the great White Sox first basemen. And I think about walks. Last year you guys had 378 walks. That was the lowest total in Major League Baseball. What do the White Sox need to do to change that, to flip that? Because you know in Oakland, we're talking about walks all the time with Billy Bean.
0: Oh, you're right. And you're right. Oakland's a phenomenal offensive club, getting on base, clutch, delivering the big hit when they have to because people are on base. Great club. I mean, obviously, Oakland set the standard on how to win with less and and making players better when they get them. I I mean, I don't know how they keep doing it. Billy Bean's been there forever. I know he's not building the club like he used to, but still. I just think that the A's have been that team. The Minnesota Twins, the A's are the organizations that do so much with less, knowing people have to get on base, knowing how to deliver delivering the clutch. Well, guess what? The White Sox, this year, they are emphasizing higher on base percentage. As you said, we didn't walk much. Well, we did add two guys to our roster that do have a very high on base percentage. And uh, Nomar Mazara has a high walk percentage, as does Edward Encarnacion. These two guys are going to be on the roster, in the lineup, and they're going to go ahead and draw more walks, be more of a presence. And I think also there's a couple of guys. Uh, Yohan Moncada strikes out a lot. Yeah, but last year he started seeing more pitches going deeper in counts. He had one of the most, uh, the highest rates of uh, pitches seen per at bat. So I think he's going to draw more walks. Jose Abreu gets hit by pitches. He'll draw a few more. I think it becomes contagious. and I think our guys are kind of fall in because the others are going deeper in counts. We've got a new hitting coach. I just think all these things kind of come in and make the White Sox a better offensive club.
3: You know, let's end on this. In the sports world, we've been watching this Michael Jordan documentary, Last Dance. Of course, you live in Chicago uh, during, the, during the season. And as you mentioned, Jerry Reinsdorf, he's a big part of this. What has been your takeaway of, of watching this documentary? <laughs>
0: It's great you asked that because I didn't watch one minute of it. Really? (laughs) No, because I don't have ESPN. I don't have it. I I got rid of all certain things, and I I just wasn't a a fan of what they were producing. So I don't have it. I have a different sports package that, uh, that I watch stuff with my family rather than that. And so I didn't see anything. And a lot of people have asked me about seeing that and what I thought of it. But my big take is this. I know Michael Jordan because in 1994, when he came out to play baseball, I was the right fielder there with him in spring training every day. So that's my connection to Michael. That's the only connection I have to him is spending time with him on a baseball field. So that last dance, I've heard so much about it. But then I see somebody also say, hey, when you have something to do with the production of it, as Michael Jordan did, you can flavor it any way you want, make it look as good as you want. So I don't know what it was about other than it was supposed to be a real good insight and intake of how things went at that time. And you know what? Um, Hopefully they'll do something like that for baseball.
3: Well, then you got to tell me, what was it like being in the outfield with Michael Jordan?
0: (laughs) It was fun. It was fun. I gave whatever insight I could to help him defensively. Um, And watching this guy work, everybody always asked, they said, Hey, do you think he could have been a big leaguer? Well, look, it's Michael Jordan. One of probably the hardest workers in the history of sport. He didn't take it for granted. He was great because he put the work in, and he did the same thing on the baseball field. If he stuck with baseball his whole life, there's a possibility. But as you know, baseball is one tough game to be successful in. It's a game of failure. And I don't know if Michael Jordan was a guy that would have liked failing in baseball, hitting 260 or 250 and not being a home run hitter. He had great speed. So he could have, athletically, yes, been a big league ball player. Um, but. You know, I gave whatever help I could to have him success that year, wherever he was going to end up. And I'm glad he had fun doing it. And the challenge and showed that he actually could put a bat on a major league baseball pitchers ball thrown to him, which blew me away in the first place because that's not easily done.
3: No. And Sandy Alderson was the GM of the A's at the time. And we recently had him on and he was going to give him a big league spot. And I'm like, this guy hasn't played baseball since he was a little kid, and you're just going to put him in the big leagues? He would have, I mean, the failure would have been—I, I don't think Michael Jordan could handle failure like that.
0: No, I mean we got to hurt Washington all over. You got a specialty guy coming in because of his name to bring fans in. That's what that would have been, but there's no way he could have been successful at major league level. But I get the tickets being sold to see Michael. That would have been something in itself. So good promotional thing, but uh, success to help a team win probably not.
3: Darren, a hey, 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 watched you your entire career. A lot of respect. Great broadcaster. Uh, look forward to seeing you in Oakland. I can't, can't wait to get the baseball going again. So be safe up there in the Pacific Northwest, and hopefully, we'll talk soon.
0: All right, Chris. Thank you very much for having me on, and success to your show. And uh, hopefully, we get back at it soon. Thank
3: you. And we're going to end with one of the legendary voices in our game. This guy's been calling Indians games for a long, long time joined him in 1990 also has done a lot of college basketball for the big 10 network we're talking about the cleveland indians with tom hamilton well he's one of the legends in our game he's one of the great baseball announcers of course also doing basketball in college tom hamilton of the cleveland indians is with us here on a's cast live how are you tom
6: well very good chris thank you i appreciate the the kind words, um, but uh, I, I think you may have exaggerated there. But thank you nonetheless. And uh, now nah, we're doing good, and you know, just thankful that uh, all of us, for the most part, including our four children who are all over the country, are healthy. And uh, you're more grateful for that than uh, we probably ever realized in our lives. So hope the same is true for you, folks in the Bay Area, fans. And uh, you know, it's
2: just. Uh,
6: and you, you wake up every morning going, um, okay, when is this nightmare over? And, uh, you know, it just kind of continues.
3: You know, you have one of the great home run calls. And I bet if you could ask any Indian fan uh, what they're missing the most, I, I bet that would be <laughs> it, your home run call. I, it's And I've been in a booth next to you, and listening to you do that call, it's phenomenal.
6: Well, thank you. I I appreciate that. It's uh it's certainly nothing planned. It, you know, you don't go into a game or at least I don't. And, and and the other thing is that I never call home runs the same. I think you get noted um for calling them a certain way even though you may not do them all the same way. I think the worst thing you can do in this business is oh, I've got my home run call all teed up here and, you know, the shortstop makes the catch and, you know, you look like a clown. So you just kinda of try to let the game dictate where you go and and uh you know I've I've been fortunate, boy, when back in the nineties, uh, you know, the nice thing about those teams, when you saw a ball hit, you never had to wonder was it a home run or not, because it was usually twenty rows up. So yeah, I've I've been very fortunate to to cover some really good teams here with the ball club and uh and, and certainly remember my first years Nineteen ninety, going out to the Oakland Coliseum and going, would it be ever nice to come out here and win one game once, and not always get swept by those juggernaut Oakland A's teams and the Bash Brothers back then?
3: You know, you think back, and we're watching a lot of classic games, and you think about those Indian teams in the nineties. It's really hard, and I know we, you know, for for our younger listeners out there. Uh, those teams are so stacked with Hall of Famers, legendary names. Uh, we got a chance to interview Sandy Alomar Jr. in Las Vegas in spring training when the A's were taking on the Indians. I mean, it's 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 hard to believe that that not one of those teams won a World Series because they had so much talent.
6: Yeah, I, I agree, Chris. I think that's one of the the disappointments, you know, and. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure even Oakland fans now, fortunately, they they got that World Series, although I'm sure some people always look at that and go, well, we never really got to celebrate it because of the earthquake and and how that even kind of uh, put a tinge on that World Series because you folks were dealing with so much else in the Bay Area that baseball seemed secondary. And uh, but Oakland got that one. And, you know, it's like anything else. People probably feel those clubs should have won more. Uh, But, you know, it it just goes to show whether you were those juggernauts with the Oakland A's or the Indians in the 90s. Boy, you get to October and all bets are off. And and I think that's also what makes our sport um, so special. In, In some ways, our playoffs remind me a little bit of the National Hockey League playoffs where, You know, you never really know. You get a hot goalie, and the next thing you know, the eighth seed is in the Stanley Cup Finals, and you're like, how the heck did that happen? And in baseball come October, you know, our 97 team um, got to Game 7 of the World Series and and lost it in the ninth inning and into extra innings to the Marlins. And, And I would tell you that that 97 team was, you know, one of the, least impactful clubs that we had back in the nineties. And yet it got that close. And even in 2016, Chris, uh, the Indians get to game seven in that, you know, really historical world series with the Cubs. And that team did it without three starting pitchers, you know, And, and you were basically down to Corey Kluber and, and Josh Tomlin and somehow got to game seven with the Cubs. And the next year in 2017, you win 22 in a row. And get bumped out in the first round of the playoffs. So, you know, the one thing—the the longer you're in this game, the more you realize—just get to October, um, because you, you just don't know what's going to happen in the Major League playoffs. Which is why, if we do get back playing this year, Chris, with the expanded playoffs, with now the best of three wild card series that seems to be in the offing, should we get to a baseball season? Can you imagine what this October might look like in baseball compared to other Octobers? It truly will be unpredictable.
3: You know, two years ago, the Yankees won a hundred games and the A's won 97. We're in the wild (laughs) card game last year. The A's win 97. The Rays win 96 and your Indians win 93. You win 93 games. You're not even in the playoffs. This is crazy. Not in the
6: playoffs. Yeah. And, uh, You know, and that's, you know, I think that was also the one thing about last year and kind of the one thing that concerns me about what we've had here the last few years, Chris, is the haves and the have-nots. We just haven't had much of a gray area. Um, You know, you have either teams winning 100 games or losing 100 games. That's not good for the game. You know, our division last year and uh, really the last couple of years have had three teams rebuilding at the same time, the White Sox, Royals, and Tigers. Uh, You can go back a few years before that, and three years in a row, the Central Division had the World Series representative, either the Kansas City Royals or the Cleveland Indians. So I know that's all cyclical in our game, but um, I hope the one thing that maybe comes out of all of this and when we eventually have a new CBA is that, Chris, we get back to... Look, um, not everybody can be a contender every year. We get that. But I I think what we've got to be really careful of is just having teams going to spring training with no hope, not only for that year, but for the next five years. That, to me, is not good for the game. And and I think it's led to some of what you just mentioned, where you've got teams with 98 and 100 wins playing in a wild card game. How the heck does that happen? I know
3: it's just, it, it, it's crazy. And then I also think of Christian Yelich signing that extension with Milwaukee and some people criticize <laughs> him, but I mean, it's like, come on, you, you know, when you have to, when he, when he when got over 200 million in the bank, you, you and your family yep. are going to be fine. And I think about Lindor and how special he is and what he means to the team. We have no idea if there'll even be a trading deadline this year But I I would like to see him stay in Cleveland. I want to see teams like for us, Matt Chapman, Matt Olson, Marcus Simeon. You know, I I, want to see us keep our players that the fans love. What do you think long-term is in the future for for Francisco Lindor?
6: Well, first off, I I couldn't agree more wholeheartedly with you. I'm from Wisconsin, and while I'm not a Brewers fan now, I was thrilled for that city and that state that a player said – I don't have to make the last nickel. I'm making really good money and I love it here. And that that that's what our game needs more of. Hey, look, I know players have earned the right to do whatever they want to do. And trust me, I don't know of many organizations that have lost more superstar players to free agency than the Indians. If it comes down to... Being a free agent and wanting to get the most money, it's never going to happen in Cleveland, and it's never going to happen in Oakland, and it's never going to happen in Milwaukee or in Kansas City. And so when you have a George Brett, when you have a Robin Yount that play their entire careers there, or a Kirby Puckett at Minnesota, who could have gone on the free agent market and made more money, that's what I wished we would see more of. When you talk about Frankie Lindor, and again, I will go back to the one thing that I'll always say a player has earned the right to do whatever he wants. But if you do want to stay in the city that you're in, then you'll make it happen. You know, Mike Trout could have left Anaheim. Now he's handsomely paid. We get all of that. You don't think he could have gotten more on the open market? Sure, he could have. So, you know, it's still got to be a two way street. When you mention Frankie Lindor, I mean, Chris, I can say without equivocation, it is 99.95%. He's gone, period, you know, and that's Frankie's right. He's earned that one because he is not only one of the great talents in the game and certainly a player that might be the first pick of a lot of GMs if they were starting a ball club from scratch, but he's also got the personality. He's got the smile. You know, he's got that gravitas. He's a good teammate. Yeah, he's everything you want in a player. He's everything you want to represent your franchise and the city. But it's not going to continue here. He's made that quite clear, as has his agent. They say the right things. But again, if you want to stay, you'll make it happen. You'll work something out. They've tried to sign him multiple times to long-term contract extensions, even when he was in his second year as a major leaguer, when guys turn down that security for the kind of money that he turned down, you know what the end result is going to be. And so I I also think though, Chris, I think this pandemic, and again, what do I know? But I really think this pandemic is going to change free agency for the next several years. Look, Frankie Lindor is going to get a tremendous contract when he comes out on the open market, but they're not going to get the contracts that were out there as late as last year. Uh, This industry is taking a gigantic hit, whether we play this year or not. And we have no idea what the future holds. I mean, Major League Baseball could be impacted again next year. Nothing is ever going to be the same in this country until we have a vaccine that we know works. And so I'm thinking of a guy like Trevor Bauer, who has been longing for the day to be a free agent. Well, you're going to get your wish, Trevor. Your free agency will be at the end of this World Series here in 2020. And watch how the bottom has fallen out of his market because of what has happened. You know, these ball clubs, these owners may be as as rich as they may be, but they didn't get rich by being stupid and by losing hundreds of millions of dollars, which could happen this year. And I think it's going to have a great impact on Trevor Bauer, on Frankie Lindor, on any free agent in the coming years.
3: You know, when we were back in Cleveland this past year, I was with the ball club, and of course, Ray Fossey is a A's legend. I went out to Heritage Park with Ray to interview him at his plaque. And that is the one thing that I think these guys like because, you know, it was just Tony Gwynn's birthday. And I think about the big statue that Tony has down in yep. San Diego. It's like you want to tell these guys, listen, I understand money. You're going to make money either way. But do you want to be honored for the forever? We, you you want to be a statue guy? Free agents don't become statue guys. Statue guys are guys that stay with the organization their entire career.
6: Yeah. um, And, you know, again, when you and I, I wish, you know, it's been a lot longer for me than it's been you than when I was in my 20s. You know, I think a lot of times when you're that age, you you don't, you know, shoot, when I was in my 20s, if I thought of somebody that is my age now, I would have thought, well, I, you know, whatever that guy should be in the cemetery by now. You know, now I'm going, oh, I, I don't know about that. I hope I've got another 20 years left. So, <laughs> I think when you're that age, it's all a matter of perception, Chris. And you're not thinking about legacy. You, you, I think sometimes they get pressurized. I know they do uh, by the union, especially if you're the top free agent that year that they want you to come out and set the market for everybody else. So, you know, again, a lot depends on the player and the agent. At the end of the day, the player has to realize the agent works for him and and not vice versa. And again, it's all up to the player. I understand if, you know, we live in a capitalistic society. If a player tells me, look, I want to be a free agent and get the very most money I can get. I respect that. I don't respect when a player says, I, I, I want to play with this certain team in this market for the rest of my career. And it's like, no, you don't. You're saying that because you don't want the fans to turn on you. You're saying what you should say is I want to be a Cleveland Indian, or I want to be an Oakland a for the rest of my career. As long as they give me the most money of any team in the game. That's really what the reality of it is. I wish there were more guys that wanted to be legacy, but I also get it. I, you know um, they've earned that right. To go out and and you know um, be the the show pony of that free agency crop and and see what they can get and 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 also there should be the ability to go and play someplace else. maybe you want to live someplace else or place for some i I respect that they should be given that right it's a a society that encourages that, but you know just be upfront about it and i I think people would be more understanding, but I think that's wishful thinking.
3: Tom, it's great to hear your voice. We truly appreciate the time. Can't wait to get this thing going, and uh, hopefully we'll see you at the Coliseum
6: sometime soon. Well, I appreciate it, Chris. Yeah, based on this schedule, I don't think we're, we're going to get uh, – I, I guess we will get west of the Mississippi, but it won't be by much. But uh, I wish you guys the best as well as the Oakland A's fans because, yeah, I, I, I really feel bad for everybody. But there are certain teams that have really primed for this moment. Oakland had a chance to be a special club this year. And uh, I know what it was like for us in 94 when the strike came and ended a dream season. Luckily, it restarted in 95 and we picked up from there. Um, I just want the Oakland A's and their fans to have a chance to have the kind of season that they, they've really worked for uh, here in 2020.
3: We want to thank you for listening to A's Unfiltered. We want to thank Burt Blylevin, the Hall of Famer, Jim Leland, Rex Hudler, Darren Jackson, and Tom Hamilton. Now back to A's cast, powered by TuneIn.
1: This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best